Go. Let me get my eyes out. <laughs> you know how I discovered I needed glasses? I went fishing one night. And I went from perfect vision to seeing everything. And then it was a period of time between fishing trips. And I went fishing one night and I snapped my line off. And I went to put the tyre hook on and I just could not see. And I'm, and, and I'm holding it out as far as I could. And then I, I still couldn't see. And so I searched the doctors to see if there was one that could give me arm extensions, and they couldn't. And they suggested, why don't you get your eyes checked and just get glasses? So I went with that, but I still don't think the eyes were the problem. I think it was the short arms. <laughs> Welcome back, Pete, from the States, from the land of hot dogs and hamburgers and... Basketball and uh, hey, and Donald Trump, yep, hey, and barbecue sauce, which by the way is absolutely laced with sugar for anyone that's interested. Um, welcome back, Pete, and Cheryl is still over there. Yep, so she'll be there for another two months, and then you'll fly back over in a month, and then you'll fly back home together after that. So good to have you back, mate, and uh, work very very hard while you're back so that you can switch off as much as you can when you go back. Over there, join your wife and your family. A man and his wife were awakened at three o'clock by a loud pounding on the door. A man gets up and he goes to the door where a drunken stranger, standing in the pouring rain, is asking for a push. Not a chance, says the husband, it's three o'clock in the morning. He slams the door and returns to bed. Who was that? asks his wife. He says, just some drunk guy asking for a push. She says, did you help him? He says, no, I did not. It's three o'clock in the morning and it's pouring rain out there. Well, you have a short memory, she says back to him. Can't you remember about three months ago when we broke down and those two guys helped us? I think you should help him and you should be ashamed of yourself. The man does as he's told, gets dressed, goes out into the pounding rain, calls out into the dark, says, hello, are you still there? Yes. Comes back the answer. Do you still need a push? Calls out the husband. Yes, please. Comes a reply from the dark. Well, where are you? Asks the husband. Over here on the swing, says the drunk man. <laughs> Over here on the swing. I want to push you a little bit. Just give you a little push today. Not because I think you're a drunk man on a swing, but because every now and then it's good to be pushed. One of the the things, I guess, the DNA of our church of Arise here is in its very name, its very nature of arising. It means standing up when you're down. It means going forward when you don't want to. It means seeking help if you don't feel like it. It means growing when you feel like staying where you are. That's part of the DNA of who we are. And we make no apologies for that. We didn't decide that. That is, I believe, uh, one of the distinctives of us as a church. And so when you come here, I hope that you walk away each Sunday stirred, encouraged, provoked, uh, because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm, every, every Sunday we're trying to, I feel like God wants to put a cattle prod in us, gently and lovingly, but he wants to say to us, hey, there's more. There's, there's more. Uh, there's a, a more to who God is, his character, his nature, that we can get to know. There's more to who we are. That God's unpacking. There's more to the mission of God on planet Earth than what we probably understand. 
there's more capacity, more potential within us than what we probably believe in. And so we want to prod and push and, and, and bring that out. And, and even for me, I, I want to be uncomfortable with standing still. I don't want to just stand still. And I don't mean not stopping and resting. That's a good thing. Rest is a good thing. I'm going to do two weeks of it while you're working hard. I'm going to enjoy every second of it. But we want to keep moving forward. We want to keep gently being pushed to grow and to face the things we need to face and to break through in the areas where we need to break through and so on. And so the last few weeks, I've, I've just felt the start of this year, this real encouragement from God that, that we're in a good place uh, as a community, but also as individuals, that, that God's saying it's going to be a great year. 2019 is going to be a really good year. I can't escape that. Uh, not that I would even want to escape that if I could, but I just have this sense that this year is going to be a great year. It's going to be a really good year. But it's going to be a year of opportunity presented to us. Whether we take the opportunities or not, that's our choice, but it's not going to, we're going to get to the end of the year. It's not going to be that God didn't give us chances to grow, chances to move ahead, chances to, to, to fulfill our purpose or to find that thing that, that where we click in that piece of the jigsaw puzzle, uh, not just here in the life of church, but even out there in the world and so on. It won't be that we weren't given the opportunity. It'll be whether we take those opportunities or not. So I want to continue just to push you a little bit this morning in a, a similar encouraging vein. I hope you're encouraged by this, but I just think that God really likes you. Okay? I just think he does. I, I don't, anyone here think God likes them? Is there anyone convinced to the core God actually likes you? you know? it's, it's, I, I love this thought that you know, some people say, God, God needs you. Well, you know, I need water. If I don't have water, guess what? I'm going to die. So I need water. But do I love water? But I need it. So, so it's one thing people say, God, God, God needs you. He doesn't, God doesn't need me. I don't add a single thing to who God is. I don't make God more complete. You know, God doesn't up there go, you complete me. Alan, you complete me. Alan, you had me at hello. Now, God's not doing any of that stuff. He is very secure in who he is. But he wants me. He wants me. And I love that thought that, okay, he doesn't need me. He wants me. It's totally different. One is because without me, he's missing something. Without water, I will die, so I, I need water. But, you know, I, I <laughs> might want Coca-Cola or something, you know. It's not good for you, and I, I'm not saying I do, but there's a difference between needing and wanting. And God doesn't need us, but he really wants us. He wants us. And, and there's something special and beautiful and unique about that. And there's something unique about us as human beings in the whole picture of creation as well. You know, When you go back to Genesis, God made the, the trees. Who thinks the trees are beautiful? The mountains, the rivers, the streams. If you look at creation, it screams of a maker. It screams and says there is some intelligent designer behind this because the order of the universe is too intricate to just have happened because two things banged together and boof, there it was. I did a, a um, uh, we bombed our house a couple of weeks ago. You know those little cockroach bombs? And we let, we let off 13 cockroach bombs in one house. It was unbelievable. It was just like an atomic mess, chaos, madness. I could see the cockroaches running around like this. I'm trying to look through the window. It's all gassed up. You can't see anything. And then at the end of it, we stayed you know, away for a couple of hours and we came back. And you open the doors and the smoke comes out and you clear it. And then you walk in, it's like, it's, it's like a scene from Saving Private Ryan. I mean, there's just cockroaches upturned, legs just twitching, silverfish over here and spiders and everything. It's just, they just come out of everywhere and they're all dead. And I looked at them and I thought, if 
If evolution is true and if I came from one of you, guess what you are? Losers! You're losers, because look at me. I developed legs and arms and thinking capacity and hair. All this stuff. You can let one of those things off, not going to kill me. I just let off a bomb and you're all dead, you pack of losers. But I didn't come from a cockroach. I just can't fathom coming from a cockroach. You know, I, I, I could, I, I see a cockroach on the ground. You know what I want to do? I want to walk up and go, how you doing? How, no, no, seriously, no, how, no, I mean it. How are you? You look like you're limping there. Is that legs? Can I pray for you? Of course I don't. I see a cockroach, I go, but I could never do that to a human being. I could never pick up a baby and hurt a child or I couldn't do that. So there's something inside of me that says there's something inherently different about the value of a cockroach and the value of a human. But apparently we all came from them. Logically, it beggars belief for me. What happened in the gene pool? Did it suddenly, well, if we came from cockroaches, why are they not half cockroach, half men? Who are still in that progressive state? Or did we sort of progress and we stopped all of a sudden? And man and was enough and now the rest of the poor suckers are like, oh, really missed it by a week. If I was born a week ago, I could have been one of them humans. My whole genealogy is wrecked. Generations, descendants. We're just going to be cockroaches. It just makes no sense. So God makes the beautiful mountains and trees. I mean, he says it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. There's only one thing in the whole creation story where when he made it, he said it's very good. You know what that was? It was you and me. When God created Adam and Eve, you go back and read it. It's good. It's good. It's good. When he makes Adam and Eve, he says it's very good. So guess what? You are... Very good. God looks at you and goes, hey, the mountains are beautiful. The trees are beautiful. I love the streams, the fish, the birds. I love all the stuff that's around. I love the sun, the moon, the stars. They're good. That's good. That's good. But he looks at you and goes, yeah, but you're very good. A little bit like Joey Tribbiani and friends, you know? How you doing? How you doing? And then a really pretty girl comes. How you doing? How you doing? There's an emphasis on the how you doing when the pretty girl comes by. And God looks at everything and goes, it's good, it's good. And he looks at you and he goes, wow, how are you doing? How are you doing? God thinks you're awesome. There's a story in Judges chapter 6 about a man called Gideon. Israel is a nation. The book of Judges is a cycle. They obey God. He blesses them. They love God after a while. They chase after foreign gods. They get comfortable in God's blessing. They say, we don't need God anymore because we've got money and we've got fame and fortune and we're blessed so we don't need God so God withdraws his hand and bang, they find themselves in a big hole and Ray, another nation comes in and invades them. Then they find themselves at the bottom of the heap and they, someone goes, hey, why don't we call out to God? He might help us. Oh, good idea. So they cry out to God and God sends a delivery, rescues them. They go back up. They start obeying him. They're blessed again. What do you think they do when they get to the top of the food chain? Same thing. They forget about God and they turn their back on God and all of a sudden an invading army comes. Into, and this is what the book of Judges is. It's a cycle of them obeying God, being blessed, turning their back on God, forgetting to do things God's way, leaning at the bottom, crying out to God. He picks them. It's a cycle. And when we get to Judges chapter 6, we're at the bottom of that cycle. Israel is, is not in a good position. The Midianite raiders are coming in and they're stealing their crops and stealing all their stuff. And we pick up in Judges chapter 6 the story of this man by the name of Gideon. In verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which is at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now, here's the thing. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. A wine press is a hole in the ground where you chuck grapes in and you tread on them and you press wine. Hence wine press. You press wine in a wine press. 
I like how the Bible makes that easy to understand. So he's pressing wine. That's what you do. It's a hole in the ground. When you thresh wheat, you do it up high. You get a pitchfork, you stick it into the wheat, you throw it in the air. The wind blows away all the chaff and the rubbish and the good wheat falls down. You don't go into a wine press in the ground and thresh wheat. But the Bible says he's doing that because he's scared of the Midianite raiders. If they see this guy threshing wheat, they'll come down from the hills and they'll just take the wheat. So here's Gideon, scared, threshing wheat in a hole in the ground. It's a picture of fear. He's afraid. He's scared. And an angel of the Lord appears, appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, I don't know about you, but if, an, if I go home today and an angel appears before me and looks at me and goes, Hey, Alan, you mighty man of valor. Wow. That's going to be a good... You're going to hear about it, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to make sure everyone knows. I'm going to put it in the Northern Star. I'm going to go on a national speaking tour, talking about what angels sound like when they say the word valour. I'm going to do the whole thing. I'm going to think I'm pretty special. But look at Gideon's response. An angel appears to him, which is not an everyday thing. And Gideon says to the angel, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? That's a message in itself, but we're not going to go there. And where are all these miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did, the Lord bring, did, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us, delivered us over? God never forsook them. They actually forsook God. They, they actually forsook God. He's going, where is the Lord? Why is, how can he be with us? But the angel's saying, hey, God's with you, but you're not with God. God's with you. You're just not with God. So God's always going to be with you, but are you with God? God's not going to leave you, forsake you because you're not perfect or you make mistakes. He doesn't do that. But are you with him as well? And the issue here is not that God had ever forsaken Israel. Israel was not with God. Israel had forsaken God. But what's interesting is the angel appears, looks at Gideon and says, you, mighty man of valor. He's talking to Gideon about who Gideon is. He's saying to Gideon what he sees, what God sees about Gideon. Gideon just misses the whole thing and deflects and, and wants to talk about the nation. The angel didn't come on down and say, the nation of Israel, he said, hey, you Gideon, you, you mighty man of valor, God's with you. How can God be with you? And he deflects, he doesn't even get it. He starts talking about the whole nation and, and, and the state the nation is in. But the angel's not talking about the nation, he's trying to say to you, Gideon, this is who you are. And Gideon's not having a bar of it. And then Gideon goes on and he says, my Lord, if the Lord's with us, then why has this happened? Where are all the miracles? Then verse 14, then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. You're a mighty man of valor. Go in this might of yours. You're going to save Israel. The angel's talking to him. And finally, look at his response. In verse 15, he says, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is what? The weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my father's house. God's got one opinion of him. You mighty man of valor. Go in this might of yours. I'm with you. I mean, this is all great stuff. And Gideon is saying, I know what you think. I know what you're saying, but here's what I'm saying. I know what you see, but here's what I see. You see a mighty man of valor, that's fine, but it doesn't really matter because what I see is I'm the weakest. I come from the weakest. I have the least, blah, 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 blah. God's looking at him, telling him, trying to tell him this is who you are. Rise up in this. Own it. Be confident. Take, take, take a hold of what I say about you. But Gideon can't see what God's saying about him because all Gideon can see is where he's come from. All Gideon can see is maybe the chatter that happened in the playground when everybody else had money for lunch and Gideon didn't have money for lunch. 
When everybody else was turning up after Christmas with their new uh, Converse shoes and all their fancy clothes and, and his parents maybe went to the Vinnies and bought him something. And he's, he's, he's looking at himself through a different, completely other lens than the way that God's looking at him. God's trying to say to him, this is who you actually are. But Gideon's saying, that's what you think, but here's what I think. And he was living not out of what God thought he was, but he's living out of what he thought he was. If he was living out of who God thought he was, he wouldn't be in a wine press threshing wheat in a wine press. He wouldn't be fearful in a hole in the ground if he actually believed he was a mighty man of valor. If he actually believed that there was might within him, if he believed that he had something to contribute, if he believed that he had something, value, some sense of worth, sense of significance, he wouldn't have been where he was. And this angel comes and says, this is what God thinks about you, but he doesn't believe it. He believes something totally different. And what he believes, that's what he's living out of. And it made me wonder, I wonder how many of us here, we've got these opinions about ourselves, and we see ourselves a certain way. And maybe we see ourselves a certain way because maybe like Gideon, he goes back to his childhood. He goes back to his heritage, where he came from, and says, that's me. That's who I am. That's where, that's where we come from. You see it all the time. You see people in cycles of, of, of poverty, education. They, 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 you know, you know it's, it's proven that statistically that, that um, when, if mum and dad have gone to university, there's a much more higher chance you'll get, your kids will go to university. It's statistically proven. I'm not saying you have to go to uni. I'm not saying anything about that. What I'm saying is it shows again that what your heritage is tends to be something that clings to you and you hang on to it and you tend to walk in the same footsteps. They found that, that um, people in, in, in socioeconomic uh, situations where they might be low, lower socioeconomic situations kids are brought up in, statistically most of them will continue that trail on and they won't break out. It's not that they won't go to school, not that they're not smart, not that they won't get opportunity, but they just see themselves a certain way and think, this is who I am, this is, this is all there's going to be, this is my future, my past is my future. But God wants to get a hold of us and he wants to change the way we see ourselves because he sees us totally different than the way that we see ourselves. But we've got to make the decision, are we going to believe what God says about us or are we going to continue to believe what we think about us, what others have said about us, what others might have shown, maybe even what your past mistakes have made you think about yourself. Are we going to continue to live that way or are we going to live by what God says? You see, here's the thing. God's opinion of me comes from unshakable truth. God's opinion about me comes from unshakable truth. It's immovable fact. When God looks at me, he's got some immovable facts to base his opinion on. When I look at me, the reality is it's all based on movable facts. It's all based on scenarios and situations and things that may have happened to me in the past, things that may have been said to me in the past, things that I may have bowed to and believed in the past. But God's trying to say there's another set of truths here and these truths are immovable fact. And I'm going to look at you and I'm going to call you by what I see in immovable fact. You're a child of God. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're not just good, you're very good. I love you so much that I would die for you. You're my child. There are immovable facts in the Bible about who you are and who I am. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what God thinks about you. The overriding power is going to come from what you think about yourself. It's what you think about yourself. Australians, we're so self-deprecating, aren't we? As Aussies, we, 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 we struggle with anybody that is, I'll use the word confident. 
We don't like confidence because we mistaken confidence for arrogance. But you know, I believe God wants every person in this room to be 100% confident and secure in the fact that they are valued, they are significant, and they are loved. Because that's what God says. It might not be your experience. It might not be what you've seen in, the, in, in, in your background. It might not be what you felt. But it's what God says about you that should be the overriding thing and the platform from which you stand and launch forward in life. Because there will always be people that have opinions about you. You'll always have opinions about yourself. Here's what I've found about opinions. I've got some opinions about myself based on my past, my background, my upbringing. I see myself a certain way because of the world that I was brought up in. Then along comes God and he's got an opinion. And it's different to mine. And then along comes Joe Bloggs or my schoolmates or my, my, my you know, family or my friends or could be my enemies. And they've got opinions too. And I tend to give the highest credence to the opinion that's closest to the one I already hold about myself. So if I think very lowly about myself, that I'm nothing, that I'm insignificant, that I have no value, no worth, and somebody else says that, I tend to go, yep, no, that's right, it's confirmation. Because what God says doesn't actually line up with what I think, so I tend to lean more towards the opinions that are closer to mine and give them the most amount of weight. But God is over here going, you know what, I see you so different than the way that you see yourself. And until I see myself the way that God sees me, I will continue in this life to be seeking significance, value and worth in so many other places. I had a chat the other day with a young guy. And he was talking about some decisions he wants to make and choices he wants to make. And I was trying to say to him, why do you want to make those decisions? Why do you want to hang out with those people? Why do you want to go to those places? Why do you... And it was all about this sense of significance and value. Right now, I, I don't seem to have any value to the people around me. I don't seem to have any significance. This group of people don't like me. So if I just go over here and I start acting a certain way, because we all know that, that, that you know, if, if, we've got, if we've got the right car the right house, we speak the right language, maybe the, the big enough bank balance, the right guy or girl hanging off our shoulder. We live in the right neighbourhood, listen to the right music, wear the right shoes, come our hair the right way, use the right aftershave. If we can nail these external things, then we'll be significant, we'll be accepted, we'll be loved, we'll fit into that group or this group or whatever. And we search for significance and we search for value in external things when we've got this voice of God screaming at us, going, your significance and your value have nothing to do with externals but everything to do with internals. God made you and he said, you're very good. God created you and said, you're very good. You're not just good. You're very, very good. I did a... a, a, a painting when I was a little kid and I, and, and I called it disco dancing. I don't know if I've ever told you about this painting. But I did this painting and it was, it was, I called it disco dancing. It was just a black, painted the back black and then I had three figures and one I think was doing this like, you know, just the legs and a head and big red hands I think like this. The hand, now that I think about it, the hands had no fingers. I don't know what was going on there but just blobs and somebody else like this and three people and I painted this painting and I was just doing a painting and then what happened was, I didn't find out until later on what they did with that painting. They took it to Westfields uh, at Burwood in Sydney. And they stuck it up in the middle of Westfield Shopping Centre at Burwood. 
And it was actually in a competition that was statewide, where people were voting on year two, year three, year four, all these things. You know, when I painted that painting, I had no idea that it was going to be judged by everybody, critiqued by everybody, valued by everybody with their votes and so on, their thumbs up there. I had no idea. And it made me think, you know what, that's kind of what my journey and your journey of life is like. When we came into this world, none of us really knew that from day one, the world's walking past us and they're judging us. They're voting. They're giving us thumbs ups or they're giving us thumbs down. They're saying that we're good. They're saying that we're not so good. They're saying that we fit in. They're saying that we don't. From the day we're born, we're being judged. And those judgments tend to seep into us whether we realise it or not. And one day we wake up and we formed an opinion about ourselves. and most of the opinions have nothing to do with what God had to say to us. Most of those opinions are the opinions we've picked up along the way in our journey of life by what other people have said, what other people have ticked off on, what they've praised us for, what they've ripped into us for. And we form these opinions about ourselves. I had no idea that that, uh, that painting was actually going to be judged by everybody. And I had no idea that as I grew up that I would stand here one day and realise I am the culmination of the judgments of so many other people that I've bowed to and believed and listened to and agreed with and adopted. And so here I am now going, God, who am I? Because this is who I think I am, but the more I get into this book, I realise, you know what, that's actually not who I am. This is who I think I am. That's who I really am. But it takes faith. Because 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. I want to see all that stuff before I believe it about me. I want to see. I want to see that I have overcome sin. In other words, I want to see me, my, myself never sinning again and completely spotless before I believe that I've overcome sin, even though the Bible says that the sin nature in me is dead and I've overcome sin. I want to feel like a child of God. I want to feel it before I actually embrace the fact that I'm a child of God. I want to feel it first. I don't want to do this faith thing. I, just want, I want to feel it and I want to know it all. I want the evidence and I want the proof. And then maybe I'll start believing some of this stuff. But this journey of faith is the opposite way, isn't it? It's, it's we walk by faith, not by sight. It's about believing first. And then as we believe these things and we begin to walk in these things, then we begin to experience. Then we begin to have them manifest themselves in our natural world. I've got to change my opinion about myself by faith. Line up what I think about myself by faith with what the Word of God says. Not sit back and wait to see if I can see it first before I actually agree with it. Gideon sitting there going, I know what you're saying to me, but... Hey, I don't know who you're talking about because I'm this person. I'm the least of the least of the least. You know what happened with that painting, by the way? I won. I won. First time I knew it was a competition was an assembly at Bad Galley Public School, the western suburbs of Sydney near Claymore in Campbelltown. And they called me up. And they said, and the winner of the Burwood-Westfields art competition is from this school, uh, the guy who always came to our school, and Alan Kirchin. <laughs> I'm walking up there going, I didn't even know it was a competition. <laughs> I just did a painting. And I don't even know what the painting was because I just want to... When I got up there, they handed me the painting. And I oh, that was... Because, you know, when you're a little kid, you do lots of painting at school, don't you? And I won. And they gave me a book. Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie by Enid Blyton. Remember the book? The Banksian Men. I love the Banksian Men. Big hairy bottle brush men. Urgh, angry bottle brushes. Nothing better. And I won. And here's the thing. I just 
did a painting. But that painting then got hung on a wall and a whole bunch of people voted on it. And you know what they did when they voted? They said, that's no longer a painting, that's a work of art. The people that mattered. The people with the power, with the opinions. The people with the authority to make the decision said, that's not just a painting, that's a work of art. And I want to tell you something today. You might have come into this world and you might not have realised that you were going to be judged. Maybe you're sitting here now and the penny's dropping and you're going, I wonder if I'm really... I've never thought about that. Maybe these opinions, these perspectives, I can see areas of my life where I'm probably... I, I haven't broken free or areas of my life where I go, yeah, it doesn't line up with what this book says. I want to tell you something. That you might think you're a painting, but there's one with power and there's one who has authority and there's one who has all knowledge and he walked around the shopping centre one day and he saw you and he voted for you. And in that moment, guess what? You went from being a painting to being a work of art. You are a work of art. You are loved by God. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. I'll finish with this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Whack this up on the... I want you to just look at this for a second. Think about this. Just as he chose us in him... When? When did he choose you? When? Just as he chose us in him after we did our first good deed. Just as he chose us in him when we made our first significant contribution to the kingdom. Just as he chose us in him when we prayed our first prayer. Just as he chose us in him when we went to our first church service, gave our first offering. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Let me, let me paint a picture for you. You know Genesis 1.1? It's not the beginning. Before Genesis 1.1, God walked around the shopping centre and he voted for you. 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 And for you. Before Genesis 1.1, before the foundation of the earth, of the world, God voted for you. Isn't that amazing? It's not only before you had the capacity to do anything good, this is before you had the capacity to even think anything good. You hadn't even thought about doing something good. I mean, how special is that? There's no such thing as an ordinary person <laughs> when you think about yourself that way. God chose you before the very foundations of the earth, before the very foundations of the world. Let me ask you a question, those of you that have children. When did you first love your child? When did that child first become significant to you? Was it when they, first time they said, Mama? Or dad, 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 dad. Was it the first time they made you a decent cup of coffee? <laughs> I told you, you're six months away from loving. Was it the first time they mowed the lawn for you and let you sit down on Sunday afternoon and put your feet up? When? When did you first love that child? When did that child first have significance to you? Let me tell you when. Before it ever had a chance to do, think, say. 
while it was still down here in the belly of your womb. Isn't that true? You loved that child before it did a thing. That child was significant to you before it ever did a thing. And that's how God feels with us. That's what this verse is saying. Before the foundations of the earth, he chose you. He loved you. He said you have value and you have significance. And we live in a world that's trying to talk you out of that daily and trying to talk me out of that. I've learned one thing, and this is a, it's been a real journey for me. Because I'm a, a very, I come from a very insecure background. I come from an extremely insecure background. I come from a background of great uncertainty, of putting myself down. I can't achieve, I could never do. I, that, that's, that's how I've always felt about myself until I came to Christ. And then I had to make decisions to go, okay, I've got to stop believing those lies. I've just got to make a choice. I never feel like not believing them. I feel like believing them every day of my life. I still feel like believing them. But I've got to say, I can't do what I feel. I don't go by my feelings. I'm, not, I'm choosing not to believe that stuff. And I'm opening this book and I'm reading what God has to say about me. And I'm going, you know what? No, I've, I've got to believe and I choose to believe that I am loved beyond my performance. I'm loved beyond my ability to contribute. I'm loved beyond anything that I could bring to the table. Because I was thought up in the mind of God. I was predestined. I was loved. I was brought to him before the very foundations of the world. So before I even had a chance to do anything where I can say, well, you know, I understand you love me, God, but hey, come on, 5%. I've got to have earned 5% of it, surely. I mean, look what I did. I'm pretty special, you know. At least just give me 2%. Just give me 1% of it then, God. Give me one. He says, no, 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 I can't do that. That's why I'm making it very clear to you. I chose you before you even had a chance to breathe. Not by works. Not by anything that you could actually do. I love that. Why is it so important to accept this and understand this? It says in 1 John 4.19, it says that we love him because he first loved us. I hope in the last three weeks that you're understanding more and more and more how much God loves you. I can preach, I can talk, I can point you to the Bible, but you've got to choose to believe it. You've got to make a choice to believe what the Bible says about you. We love because he first loved us. I believe my capacity to accept his love is my capacity to give love out to others. When I struggle to believe that I am lovable, I struggle to love. When I struggle to believe that I am accepted, I struggle to accept. When I struggle to believe that I am significant, I struggle to show significance to others and give significance to others. God loves us and God loves you unconditionally. And it's a daily choice to believe that. A couple of weeks ago, I had a friend from school come down and uh, he's not a believer at all and he wanted to see the building because he knew we had a building. So I brought him up here. We came on in, we had a look at the building and he, he did some hallelujahs while he was here and stuff. I said, see, mate, the rift didn't cave in, you're good. But an interesting thing happened. He starts asking me, so what do you do? Like, what do you do? Because it does seem weird, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know if you've ever uh, thought about it, but a pastor's job seems kind of weird, you know? Everybody knows we only work an hour and a half on a Sunday. That's what everyone thinks. And so he's asking me, what do you do? Well, okay, I spend time seeking God. That means nothing to the world. I study the Bible so that I I can approve myself a worker worthy and be able to teach truth. That doesn't mean nothing. I catch up with people and, you know, talk them through life issues and, and help them out and stuff. But, you know, he's a highfalutin electrician and, you know, has worked in the mines and earns big bucks and stuff like that. And that doesn't really mean much. And I found myself in this conversation with him trying to find out, trying to describe what I did. 
and I couldn't find anything that I thought made me look significant. It was interesting. I'd never been in that situation before. And I'm trying to explain what I do, and the whole time I've got this voice in my head going, you are insignificant, Alan. Nothing you do is valuable. What are you doing with your life? I've got this voice plugging away at me. By the end of the conversation, I felt so flat, because I, and I realised I'm, I'm trying to justify and, 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 and find my significance in what I do. What's my career path? How do I explain what I do? How significant? Or, and, and, and all of a sudden I had to snap out and go, no, 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 no. That is not what gives me my value. That is not what gives me my significance. It's that I have the very fingerprints of God upon me. It's that when God made me, he said, it's very, very good. It's that God chose me before the foundations of the world. It's that God says I'm his child. It's that I'm no longer a slave to fear. It's that I'm now a, a, a child of God. It's that I've been set free. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Well, guess what? And I'll leave you with this thought. If you really believe that, if you really believe that in Christ you're a new creation, then stop thinking about yourself the way you did when you were the old creation. Stop thinking about yourself the way you used to. If you really believe that you are new and you are changed, then you have to have a new and changed opinion about yourself. You can't be a new creation and still be thinking about yourself the same way that your background dictates and tells you that you should. If I'm a new creation, and that word new in the Greek literally means brand spanking new. It's not I took a, a beat up, uh, you know, I took a two-year-old uh, Commodore and I took it to the shop and they, 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 they rebuilt it and put a new... It's not that. It's literally saying that Commodore two years old was sent to the trash heap and they sent you a brand spanking new unblemished one. That's what it means in the Greek. Completely 100% brand new. If you are a 100% brand new creation, then you need to understand that that creation is talked about in this book. When we got the air cons put in and we got these beautiful systems up here. If I want to work out how to get the most out of those air conditioners, what have I got to do? I've got to go and read the manual. Why? Because the manual came from the originator of these air conditioners. So if I go and read the manual that came from the originator, I'll get the most out of these three air conditioners above your head. My wife hates reading manuals. She hates it. But guess what? I keep saying, don't ask me. I'm not the original. I didn't make an iPhone. I don't know how it works. I don't know how to, to bring this. And to, I don't know. And every time she gets it, I say, have you read the manual? No, no, you t- have you read the manual? Well, no, you just tell me. I can't tell you. And here's the thing. If you want me to tell you, I'm going to send you up the garden path and you're going to end up all messed up and confused. And that's what's happened to most of us. We haven't gone to the manual, the author, the one that created life. We've got our opinions from all kinds of other sources and it's messed us up. It's messed us up. Please. <laughs> please. It's like I'm begging with you. Please. Guys, I, I, I just want to go on holidays knowing that, that you know that you are loved by God beyond your performance, beyond how many likes you got on Facebook, beyond how many people like your Instagram posts or how many followers you have on whatever the latest fatty thing is out there. Your popularity is not based on how many people follow you. Your, your, your value is not based on what you do or what you feel like your contribution is, whether you think it's big, bad, uh, little, small, whatever, whether you're the captain of the football team or you're the guy that always gets picked last. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you are created by God, for God, you are loved by God. And before the foundation of the world, he made that decision and there's nothing that you are ever going to do that's going to change his mind. You're not going to change his mind. Amen? Father, I want to thank you for, uh, Lord, the word of God. I want to thank you, God, that you are not some uh, religious system. Jesus did not come to earth and talk about a philosophy. He spoke about a heavenly father. And that loves us. 
and that created us to have a relationship with him. And Lord, we thank you this morning that we're not sitting here as a bunch of religious people. God, we're sitting here as a bunch of new creations that you have created, that you have made and fashioned. God, we're sitting here as a bunch of people that you loved and chose before the very foundation of the world, before you did anything, before you got up off your chair and did any work. You thought something first and you thought, I want them. You thought, I love them. And God, I just pray as we go through uh, this next week, Father, let that message just penetrate our hearts, Father. God, let it permeate us, Lord. We, we want to not just know it in our head, but let the penny drop down into our hearts that you love us, that you're crazy about us, and that you care for us, Father. And Lord, I pray for people that are sitting here and finding it hard to believe all that stuff. Lord, I just pray, gently, Holy Spirit, work with them. Unpack the junk, the rubbish, the lies, all the things that have built up over time that have made them think differently. God, all those voices that are trying to say we're the truth and God's a liar. That's just not true. And Father, I pray also as we go from here in the next seven days, those of us that love you, God, I pray, give us a chance to tell somebody else about the goodness of God that doesn't yet know who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, this is that awkward part of church where everyone kind of sits there quietly and we don't know what to do until Luke puts music on. And then once the music comes on, everyone just sort of gets up and starts turning to people next to them. I don't know why it's so awkward at the end of church, but it is, isn't it? Everyone goes, right, so we're waiting for that music from Luke. As soon as that music comes, you watch what happens. You watch. There you go.